So what we're going to do is I'm just going to read from Judges chapter 6 from verse 25. And we read, That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this crag, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, Bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to fight Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerobal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. We thank God for his word today. Now, if during the the sermon later at any time look a wee bit inconvenienced that's probably because my crown's fallen out and I've just swallowed it so don't worry too much unless I begin to lose go a bit blue or something like that that's fine and if anybody's got any super glue if you could loan it to me after the service we'll soon sort the problem out okay let's come and pray together heavenly father we just want to thank you for just your word and your provision for us, the way that you speak directly into our lives through your word. We pray that you'll be with us, that you'll move among us, that you'll speak directly to us today. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I get alongside uh, Christians and church workers, not only in this church, but in other churches too, there are Two comments that fairly frequently I hear repeated. One is sometimes people speaking personally of how they spiritually feel a bit low. And the other is where people comment on how as a church, in in the wider sense, as a church, we're not making inroads into the community. We're not connecting with the real needs of our community, touching the lives of men and women in anything like the way we should. 
Well, you know, the reason, one of the reasons, main reasons why I believe in, in consecutive Bible teaching and exposition, as it's formally called, is because I, I believe that over a time it deals with problems just like this. The real problems of God's people. Some that we realize, that we know. Others, though, perhaps like this, that, that we'd be inclined to overlook or even maybe try and, and hide away from and so forget. And certainly that's the case with this episode in, in Gideon's life here that we're going to look at together now. Because here, both of the problems that we've just mentioned, problems for the individual and for the church, both of them here are covered. And even more importantly than that, the vital but too often unrealized connection that there is between these two is brought right out here into the open. And we're going to look at this this morning under the title of Three Steps to Effectiveness. Three Steps to Effectiveness for us both at the personal, individual level and also for us as a church. And the first step is the step of acknowledgement. The step of acknowledgement. For you see, here the Lord brought Gideon to acknowledge. We could even say maybe he forced Gideon to acknowledge that the problem began at home. That before he could begin to change his world, that he first had to deal with the Baals, that is, with the false gods in his own backyard. The Baal, if you like, was in his court. I'm so proud of that one. Anyway, now, what I'm talking about, you can read off in verse 25 and 26 of chapter 6. You know, that same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wool of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Well, putting all this together, it would seem then that somewhere near Gideon's village, there had been built an altar to Baal, this great Canaanite false god, with a corresponding wooden pole erected somewhere nearby as a symbol of the worship of Asherah, Baal's feminine counterpart, the Canaanite goddess of fertility. Now from the, the prominent part that he plays here in, in this story, I think we can deduce that, that Joaz, Gideon's father, who seems to have been a man of some substance, a man with a, a herd of cattle and certainly with more than, than ten servants, I think we can deduce then that he was in some way that the custodian if you like, of the center of the worship of Baal. But you know, the interesting thing is that the Joash's name actually means Yahweh, the one true God. The one true God has given. And the picture that, that this seems to present, of this being a people at this point in their history, who were trying to, to combine together worship of their God, Worship of the one true and living God. Worship of the Lord God with the worship of the various Canaanite, Canaanite gods, pagan gods, the, the false deities of the people around. And of course, that just 
won't do. It won't. Because the God who is Lord, he just cannot share his place of lordship. He cannot share his rightful first place in the lives of his people with anyone or with anything else. His character, who he fundamentally is, just won't allow that. And the values that he has, the demands that he makes that are unique, make it just an impossibility for your life, or at least the first place, the first loyalty in your life, to be shared between him and anything else. Now, there's a point that I want to to make, or maybe more accurately, to underline here. But before I do that, let me just point out one or two interesting little details here. At least I think they're interesting. First of all, does it maybe seem to you a little bit excessive using a bull to pull down this altar? I mean, the, the altars that we know of would hardly need a bull to pull them down. So is this maybe just a little bit of dramatic overkill? Well, here's an interesting piece of information for you. In fairly recent times, not too far from where this incident actually took place in in Megiddo, there, an altar to Baal that was probably very similar to this one has been found. It's been excavated. Do you know what its dimensions actually were? It was 26 feet square, four and a half feet high, and it was made of stones that were cemented, locked together. And you see, on this altar, probably the most terrible forms of sacrifice imaginable, human sacrifice, child sacrifice took place. And this altar would also be the center of ritual prostitution of almost every kind of perversity imaginable. This altar then was basically an altar of worship of Satan raised right in the very heart of God's people. So do you see then why it had to come down, even though it took a bull to pull it down? The second interesting point, and it's certainly a symbolic point, surrounds this, this bull itself. This bull, let me just first say that the original Hebrew actually leaves itself open to a little bit of confusion here as to whether there was one bull used or two bulls. And some of the different translations some of you might be using reflect this. But be that as it may, there was certainly at least one bull used here. A seven-year-old mature bull who later was sacrificed on the altar of the Lord as a burnt offering to him. And the interesting symbolic fact about this is that this time span of seven years, the age of this bull, is precisely the period of time that the Israelites, that God's people, because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, precisely the period of time that because of that, they'd been suffering at the hands of the Midianites, at the hands of the world. So do you see, do you understand, do you get what the Lord's saying here then? Surely what he's saying is that as his people turn away from their rebellion, as they turn their backs on their false gods, and as they turn back in repentance to him, so then their oppression will be over. Their time of bondage 
will come to an end. And from that point, they then can stand again as the free, cleansed, restored sons and daughters, children of the living God that they are. And that's the symbolism of this bull. That's the symbolism of the smoke of the burnt offering rising up to the heavens. Anyway, the, the point that I, I want to make to underscore is that, take note here, the people here had to personally get right before they could conquer again the world around them. And before they could personally get right, before they could be right, they first had to deal with the Baals. They first had to deal with the false gods that they'd allowed to be there in the center. Now, do you see him? Maybe can we stand almost the challenge of this? Because you see, so often, we like to blame everybody else and everything else. We like to see all sorts of different things and all sorts of different people as the reason why the church isn't making an impact on society, as the reason why maybe our spiritual lives aren't the way they should be. It's somebody else's fault. It's the pastor's fault, the deacon's fault, the elder's fault. It's the small groups. It's because of the theology of the church. It's because of our style of worship. It's because of what's missing in our worship. It's because of our lack of focus on mission. And so the truth is that while all of these maybe do have some bearing and maybe are real and true, yet the real reason why the church isn't making an impact, the real reason why you are not spiritually growing and maturing is down to us. Fundamentally, it's about us individually. For if each one of us were getting close to God, if each one of us then were overflowing with the love and the grace and the life of Jesus Christ, and if the, the love of Jesus was compelling us to go out into mission and ministry and evangelism in his name as it did for the Apostle Paul, well, then despite whatever other faults we might have and the church might have, we could not help but make an impact on the world. And in this regard, uh, it's interesting, I came across words that I'd written down a long time ago from the, the BU presidential address of, of Alec Wright, who was at one time the minister of Glenrothes, speaking way back way back in 1993, he said these words. Why does our gospel have so little relevance to the world of men and women, young people and children, and the unreached masses around our doors? I dare to suggest that they find the gulf between what we profess and how we live a gulf unbridgeable. And we're going to spend a lot more long hours on committees with paltry results if that gulf is not bridged quickly. But you see, you know, how all of this fits and connects together. Before we can make an impact on the world, we've got to personally get right spiritually. But before we can do that, we too have to deal with our false God. And while we maybe don't have, we know we don't have, literal altars to Baal and 
Asherah poles set up. Yet we do have our false gods, I believe. We do. And of course, we could talk a lot here about various things that have been mentioned many times before. Things like possessions and wealth, career, reputation, even our families. Things that should have a place in our lives and should be important. And yet, if they are given an undue priority, then become false gods. But you know what I think is one of the main false gods? Something that touches on all these areas. That's at the root of them all. The false god of today is the pursuit of pleasure. Which in a real sense is actually the deification of self. For you see, we, we say we feel far from God. And we've no time to spend in His presence. No time to read His Word. No time to get down on our knees in prayer and sort our lives out before Him. We've got no time to pray with God's people and join in worship maybe with God's people. Other things push it out. We're too busy. We've no time. But you know, at the same time, we've often got plenty of time to sit and watch our television. We've got plenty of time to amuse and entertain ourselves in a whole variety of ways. There's so many different ways we look to spoil ourselves. But we've got no time to get right with God. You know, I always remember a snippet of an interview I once caught on the car radio when I was driving around, and it was an elderly lady author. Her extremely busy life was being laid out, detailed. And the interviewer remarked, you know, listen to all this, try to compliment her. How do you ever find time to read books? The indignant almost late reply from this lady was that you always can find time to do the things you want to do, to do the things that are important to you. Isn't that true? And so you see, as we fail to find time for God, so what we're saying is that he's not really that important to us. And that false gods, the altars of false gods, are actually there, lifted up, raised up in our hearts and lives. Another false god that I feel I have to mention here and I believe this can be viewed as a false god because usually to, to greater or lesser degree, this too involves an element of self-deification of some kind. It's an expression of this anyway because that's why we find it so hard to deal with, so hard to, to let go. It's, it's tied up with forgiveness. It's tied up with our need as human beings and particularly as Christians to forgive and yet, so often, our outright refusal to do that very thing. Well, Neil Anderson, in his book, The Bondage Breaker, he talks about forgiveness, or rather the lack of forgiveness, as being one of Satan's main inroads into our lives and into the church. Let me just share a quote from him. It's, it's lengthy, but I think it's worthwhile. This is what he says. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the life of Christians is due to unforgiveness. We are warned to forgive others so that Satan cannot take advantage of us. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. 
God requires us to forgive others from our hearts or he will turn us over to the tormentors. Matthew 18, 34 and 35. Why is forgiveness so critical to our freedom? Because of the cross. God didn't give us what we deserve. He gave us what we needed according to his mercy. Forgiveness is not forgetting. People who try to forget find that they cannot. God says he will remember no more our sins. But God being omniscient, all-knowing, cannot forget. Rather, remember no more means that God will never use the past against us. Psalm 103, verse 12. Forgetting may be the result of forgiveness, but it is never the means of forgiveness. When we bring up the past against others, we haven't forgiven them. Forgiveness is a choice, a crisis of the will. Since God requires us to forgive, it is something we can do. He would never require us to do something we cannot do. But forgiveness is difficult for us because it pulls against our concept of justice. We want revenge for offenses suffered. But we are told never to take our own revenge, Romans 12 verse 9. But why should I let them off the hook? We protest. You let them off your hook, but they are never of God's hook. He, though, will deal with them fairly, something we cannot do. If you don't, though, let offenders off your hook, you are hooked onto them and the past. And that just means continued pain for you. Stop the pain. Let it go. You don't forgive someone merely for their sake. You do it for your sake so that you can be free. Your need to forgive isn't an issue between you and the offender. It's between you and God. Now, this of course applies to all of our lives at the individual level. We have to have a willingness in our hearts to forgive others. We have to be ready to release forgiveness to others or else that unforgiving spirit that we have will hinder the work of God in our lives. And I've seen it again and again. For our unforgiveness, our unwillingness to forgive, that raises a barrier in our lives to the grace and the mercy, the love and the joy and the power of God. But you know, let's just think for a moment about how this might apply to the life of the church as a whole. For you see, we're a church that's been here for a while. In some ways, we're a mature church, though we know we've still got plenty of growing and maturing to do. And if ever we think we haven't, we're in big trouble. But you see, inevitably, over the years, with a fair number of people and ministries, well, without doubt, decisions have been made that some people don't agree with. And maybe over the years, people have said things that have hurt others. We may be unaware of what we've said, but 
there's no doubt that that happens in the life of the church. But you see, now we've, we've got to the point where we're seeking to work through a new vision for the future. And we're not going to change fundamentally who we are or change the fundamentals of what we believe, but we know that we've got to look again at the way that we do things. We've got to look at the methods that we use if we're going to minister effectively in the world of today. But you see, if this process is going to bear fruit, if our seeking after God's will, if, if after our prayer and our discussions and decision, if all this is ever going to take us anywhere, if it's ever going to lead to anything, then all of this has to take place in an atmosphere, in a context of love and forgiveness. Because I tell you, God can handle our mistakes. God knows that we will make mistakes. He knows it because he knows we're weak, fragile, fallen human beings. And you know, in his sovereign greatness, he is able even to take our mistakes and weave them into his sovereign plan. But what God cannot handle is unforgiveness. And what God will not work with is a person or a people with a bitter, unforgiving spirit. Because let, let's be clear, let's be clear. It's not the problems of the past or the mistakes of the past or even the problems and mistakes of the present and the future. It's not these things that will hold this church back. No, it's the attitudes of the present it's our attitudes, our heart in the here and now that will hold us back. And we need to be honest about these things. We need to face up to them. We need to acknowledge them. That was Gideon's first step to effectiveness. Acknowledgement. We're going to deal with the next two steps much more briefly, so relax. But the next step was the step of obedience. And, and this obedience is demonstrated here in his willingness to go and destroy these, these pagan altars, albeit under cover of darkness. In fact, you know, that, that, that's a detail that, that actually I rather like. Because what it demonstrates is that in essence, faith isn't demonstrated by fearlessness, but rather by obedience. For a lot of us have problems, don't we? Thinking, you know, that unless we can do what we know God wants, unless we can do that with absolute confidence and absolute trust, no worries, no questions, no fears, unless we're that kind of Christian, well then in some way, although we maybe still do what God wants, yet still we feel that we've tragically let him down because we've had that, that lingering fear. But that's, I don't believe so, it's just not so. For a lot of that is, is down to personality. It's down to who we are as people. Now, what really matters with regard to faith isn't our fearlessness, but rather it is our obedience. In fact, I've got a sneaking suspicion that it's those times when we obey, though our hearts are maybe thumping and our knees are knocking together, it's those times that are actually most precious of all to God. But what I also want you to notice here are, are the results that we find of this obedient faith. 
That is that some, actually the vast majority of Gideon's fellow townsmen wanted, as he expected they would, that he be put to death for what they saw as this grave offense. And it's amazing, really, when you think of it, that for the sake of a false god, the worship of whom had brought them only misery and degradation, that they are willing to do this. But that's how spiritually twisted the minds of men and women can become when Satan really gets a hold of their lives. But at the same time, in contrast, we find here also the beginnings of a spiritual transformation in the life of Joash, Gideon's father. That's seen, I believe, in, in his words that I think are actually more than just the spirited defense of a beloved son, but that rather actually do mark the beginning of a real spiritual awakening. But you see, all this is interesting because you see exactly the same pattern as this again and again in the New Testament, particularly in, in the ministry of Jesus and the way people react to the ministry of Jesus. That when God begins to work, when God actually begins to move and to do something significant, then people usually react to that in one of two different ways. Some are attracted to it. They want to be part of what God's doing. Others are repelled by it. And they oppose it with all their might. Just one example in Mark 3, just after Jesus had healed a man with a shriveled hand, we read then in verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Then verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd followed. You see, some plot against, others follow. Now, I point this out because I don't want to mislead anybody, to bring you under a false apprehension. Because some of you don't, I don't know, you might be sitting there thinking, if only we, we got right with God individually. You know, if only we did what, what we're talking about here. If only we dealt with our false gods and then began moving out into the community. Well, then what a wonderful time we'd then have. The church really living as the church, operating it. It'd be wonderful, all sweetness and light. I don't think it would. I don't think so. I think we would maybe have a wonderful time, but in a different way to, to that which we'd normally think and be prepared. But I'll tell you what, at the same time, we would meet opposition from Satan, the like of which we maybe have never known before. I mean, do you really think that Satan will easily let go of the people around in this community that he now holds in the palm of his hand? No way will he do that. No way. And I'll tell you what, if we do think that going on with God is all about sweetness and light, if that is what we are thinking, then... The moment anything begins to happen, the devil will seek to knock us for sex. He'll hammer us. He'll seek to divide us. He'll try to get us to concentrate on one another's little faults and forget the big thing about our unity in Jesus Christ. And unless we take care, the devil moves against God's people. We've seen it again and again. Significant works of God. Then the devil gets in, divides, and he seeks to destroy that, though, is the second step of effectiveness, the step of obedience. The final step is the step of empowerment. 
And we read about this in verse 33 to 35. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they went to meet them. Now, you know, here I could talk a lot about things like the difference there is between the ministry of the Spirit in Old Testament times as compared to the New Like, for instance, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was usually only given to certain believers to equip them for particular ministries over usually a limited period of time. Whereas in the New Testament, the Spirit is given now to all believers to equip God's people for ministry now and for all eternity. However, what's most of all I want you to take note of in regard to the empowering of Gideon, this infilling of the spirit that enabled him to unite his people and for them then to take on together the enemy to take on together the world what i want you to notice again is that this only happened once gideon had dealt with his own sin once gideon had torn down his own false gods and you know what it is it really is precisely the same for us The New Testament tells us that as believers, we can grieve the Spirit. It tells us that as God's people, we can quench the Spirit. We can put out the Spirit's fire. It tells us that unless we deal with the sin in our own lives and deal with it daily, regularly, whenever it rears its head, unless we do that, we can find ourselves living that saddest life of all, a powerless Christian life, a powerless Christianity. So that brings us in right back to the challenge we've been faced up with again and again throughout this morning. It's hard to face up to, but it's there. Are you ready today to deal with the sin in your life? Even if they're there, are you ready to deal with what have maybe become false gods in your life. Are you ready to do that? Because I want to tell you, the future of this church, the future in many of this community who are without Christ, and your own spiritual life and future, depend on your answer to that question. May the Lord give us all the strength and courage to make sure that we give him the right answer today. Let's come and let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your grace and your love. We want to thank you for your willingness to forgive. We want to thank you that you continually empower us as your people. We want to thank you for all that you've given us and all that we are in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray this now. Amen.